The following is a message by Professor Joel Kim from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. As you might have heard, we're going through the epistle to the Galatians this semester on Thursdays, and we start off this morning by turning to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In this letter, Paul is engaged in a battle for the gospel. In short, he is writing to defend the free grace of God in Christ Jesus, received by faith, as summarized in Galatians 2.16, when he says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is against any teaching and religion that implies anyone can save oneself by his or her own good works. Self-salvation is impossible in the mind of Paul. And to this, I think all of us can agree, and perhaps we can point at our fingers at someone who's mistaken in terms of their religiosity and thought. And although all of us are united in our opposition to any form of self-salvation, perhaps our thought that perhaps Galatians doesn't belong to us or need, need it by us is something that we need to reconsider as we consider the following. This letter is also written to those who believe that God loves them, but secretly also believe that such love is conditional. Such people desire to earn God's love by their performances, often confusing giftedness with godliness and busyness with blessedness, and live as if God's love depends on their own accomplishments. This letter is also written to those who believe that God's grace is sufficient for them, but secretly feel that such grace is not sufficiently satisfying. Such people find satisfaction by making what is good into what is ultimate, whether it be status, wealth, education, intellect, or even relationships, making idols of God's gifts and believing that our idolatry is actually pleasing to the Lord. This letter is also written to those who believe that God is faithful and worthy of our trust, but secretly trust themselves more looking for evidences of success in all things temporary and earthly. Such people believe that the size of their church indicates their success or purity. The number of compliments indicates the success or failure of their sermons or the way in which they exercise or refrain from exercising their Christian freedom indicates their maturity or immaturity in faith. This letter is written to those who believe that the gospel is the great leveler making all, regardless of ethnic or socioeconomic levels, equal before the sight of God, but secretly think that such equality is impossible and perhaps even undesirable. 
such people judge others not on the basis of God's view of them, but based upon criteria that are subjective, prejudiced, and earthly. I wonder if you're like me in fitting at least one of those explanations. At least I am. Because in other words, the letter is written to all who know and believe the gospel of God's grace, yet are more, are more confident and comfortable in trusting what they have done for God instead of what God has done for them. This is a story of my life while confessing belief, at least in terms of the way I live my life, I live as if Christ is far away. It's written for people like you and me, many of us who are recovering Pharisees and legalists. It's to them Paul writes, and in this introduction he gives us several pointers to what he's about to discuss. There are three things in particular we want to mention this morning briefly. One is that it's not about me, in this case, Paul. Second, it's all about Christ. And finally, it's all about the glory of God. It's really not about Paul, and Paul will tell you this over and over again. J.B. Lightfoot in his commentary on Galatians says, says this, The two threads which run through this epistle, the defense of the apostles' own authority, and the maintenance of the doctrines of grace, are knotted together in the opening salutation. And it's proper, and Lightfoot is certainly right, in noting Paul's vigorous defense of his authority. However, the question that we have this morning is that, is this the result of Paul's defensiveness or his concern for his reputation? Is it about himself that he's concerned about? You have to remember that Paul was like this in Philippians, where people, as he's sitting in prison, were challenging his authority. A lot of them were going out and proclaiming the gospel while backstabbing him. And as this was going on, as Paul finds out, his reaction was typically Paul. Instead of lashing out, perhaps questioning the motives of these individuals and recognizing that they're doing this in a sinful way, yet he ends that particular section in chapter 1 by saying, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. As long as the gospel is proclaimed... His reputation doesn't really matter. At least this is how he's uh, uh, responded to those who are working against him. So in this case in Galatians, I believe the same thing is true of Paul. Paul was not defending himself as much as he was defending the authority vested in him to preach and teach the gospel of Christ. In other words, he is defending himself in order to defend the gospel the message that's being undermined by challenging the messenger, in this case, Paul. Because Paul himself knew he's not the message. His authority is derived. It's given to him. Galatians 1, 1 through 2 simply say, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul is emphatic in asserting that his apostolic authority is not from men but from God. And in fact, he himself does not possess this authority, but it's been given to him and vested in him. What he's about to defend is not about himself or his reputation because ultimately that really does not matter much to Paul. What he's defending is the gospel itself, and he desires to be hidden from this discussion. 
In fact, he reminds us over and over again throughout Galatians that he's received this gift of the gospel. As he says in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, when he's talking about what he's done, when he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation not only about Jesus Christ, but a revelation given to him by Jesus Christ. He's a man standing under someone else's authority. And despite the fact that he spends time defending himself, The purpose of that is not to defend his reputation or his standing in the community in which he finds himself. It's to simply so that his equation and his self can disappear from this discussion. So that the gospel message may not be undermined by the Galatian attack upon him, his character, and his authority. So Galatians, while spending some time defending Paul and his apostolic authority, it's really not about Paul, he says. Because Galatians is primarily about Christ. Verses 3 and 4 say, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God the Father. Immediately preceding these verses speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul, in reteaching the Galatians about the gospel, begins with the two great events of the gospel, the resurrection, as well as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. For the story is all about Jesus. Because for Paul, a new age of salvation has broken into time when God fulfilled his saving promises to Israel and to the whole world. At the heart of God's salvation was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For he tells us this in summary form in these two verses when he says, Christ gave himself up. It is a willing and loving act of Christ who didn't die forced, but it's a loving, voluntary giving up of himself by dying on on the cross for us. As John chapter 10 says, I lay down my life, Jesus says. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. But of course, the verse goes on to say that it's not for himself either. Because when Christ gave himself up, he gave himself up for us, the verse says. We who deserve condemnation and death because we sinned against a holy and infinite and perfect God, here on our behalf Christ stood. Christ took our place upon the cross, as Galatians 3.13 reminds us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Not only did he voluntarily and lovingly give himself up, it says, not only did he give himself up for us, Christ gave himself up for us so that we might have new life. Christ saved us from this present evil age where corruption, decay, misery, and death from sin reign. He brings us into a new creation, as Galatians 6.16 tells us, where grace and mercy and life Rain. This is why he's even able to begin with the words, grace and peace to you. For that is derived from Christ Jesus himself. Colossians makes this very clear in terms of describing it as a transference from one kingdom to the next. As it says, he has delivered us, as Dennis Johnson taught us last week. 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's all about Christ. This new life is the result of Christ and is simply received by faith. We know that a person, 2.16 says, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul knew this well. Perhaps he mentions the resurrection first because he himself encountered the risen Lord. And perhaps it's the autobiography of Paul that leads him to say, Christ resurrected, yet he also died for us. For Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, was at the heart of Paul's gospel message. This is why he was so upset. When some Galatians try to turn back the clock of redemptive history by submitting themselves again to circumcision and to the Mosaic law, Paul could no longer contain himself. Calling it a different gospel worthy of condemnation, he expresses his surprise for their desertion, chapter 1, verse 6, considers their actions foolish, chapter 3, verse 1, and asks whether anyone bewitched them. Many people have spoken of the abrupt beginning where he talks about the recipients and simply mentions Galatians without having the kind of personal touch to it as he usually does in places like Romans 1.7 when he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. No, to the Galatians he simply says, hey, to the Galatians I write. And not only that, the pleasantries of praying for them and blessing them is absent from this letter Because for him, he simply begins with the words, I am astonished that you so quickly turn away. He is upset at the Galatians. For the free grace of God in Christ Jesus is received by faith alone. And that's at the heart of the gospel message that Paul has proclaimed before, now proclaims again. And he vehemently defends it in his letter to the Galatians. Because at the end, Galatians forgot. It's all about Christ. It's appropriate, it seems, that as he ends this introductory section then, that he ends with the words penned in verses 4, second half, and 5. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For the good news that Paul has proclaimed is that Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. All this was done according to the will of God and Father. Christ's death and resurrection represents the fulfillment of God's promise to his people to save and deliver them. It is as God intended from the beginning. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. What is absent in this equation, in this introduction, in this summary? Well, what's absent is me, myself, and I. It's not about us. And in fact, I could have section titled this simply, It's Not About You or Me, for it's about Christ. The gospel is not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. No wonder. Having spoken of what God has done in Christ Jesus, his son, he ends his introduction with a doxology when he says, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is to be praised forever because of his saving work for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think that's an appropriate ending. That having talked of what Christ has done for us and having seen that Christ is indeed at the center of all the work of God, 
It ends by lifting our heads toward God and praising his name. John Stott, not commenting on this particular verse, but about chapter 11 of Romans, where the end section of Paul ends with the doxology, says this about the connection between theology and doxology. And I bring this in despite the fact that it's a bit of a longish uh, uh, um, uh, quotation because I do hope that our time spent together in Galatians brings us to this point. That more we reflect upon what God has done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord, the more we reflect upon the death and resurrection of our Lord Christ Jesus, and the more we think about the doctrine of justification, which allows us to stand before God and call him Father, no longer as judge, in fear, that it leads us to praise. As it says, it is of great importance to note from Romans 1 through 11 that theology, that is our belief about God, and doxology, our worship of God, should never be separated. On the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology. It is not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who is and what he has done. Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. On the other hand, there should be no theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship as it did Paul. Our place is on our faces before him in adoration. Brothers and sisters, as we begin our new semester, as we think about our training here in seminary, we as people who are recovering Pharisees need to hear the teaching of Paul again and again and again. We need to hear and understand the gospel in Galatians and understand what that means for us, not only in our vertical relationship with God, but how our lives ought to be led before the sight of God. Ultimately, as we think about the fact that it's not about me, it's not about Paul, but that it's all about God in Christ Jesus, I pray that we will end up where John Stott describes, with our faces down before our God and King, who loved us, sent his Son to die for us, so that we might have life, taken away from this present evil age, but then indeed, Peace and grace may reign in our lives. I pray that through our Thursday meetings like this, as our faculty members exposit the book of Galatians, our response simply will be worship before him, praising him for all that he has done. Let's pray. Father, we confess before you that oftentimes we live as hypocrites saying one thing with our mouths, believing something with our minds, but yet our lives are conducted in ways contrary to our confession. We ask that, Lord, you will surround us with the blood of Christ Jesus our Lord and forgive us for our failings. For we know that daily, Lord, we need to depend upon you, utterly depend upon your grace. And we ask that you will guide us, O Lord, 
strengthen us, remind us of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I pray that as a result, our lives will be led in worship before your side. We ask for your blessings upon these students. Pray for their physical and emotional strength. I pray that your presence will be so felt and known among them that indeed they cannot help but to turn to you and sing praises to you. We thank you for this time and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.